In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Sandy here. Today on Money Tales, Cami and I talk with Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni. Jamie is someone who's been talking about money her whole life. It started with her parents who continually emphasized the need and modeled the importance of discussing and learning about the value of money, how to use it, and the importance of saving it. This developed Jamie's fascination with money, which led to her becoming a wealth psychologist. In her practice, Jamie specializes in the emotional impact of wealth on inheritors, women, and couples. This is Cami. In addition to her professional career, Jamie is a second-generation owner of a family business and board member of her family foundation. This firsthand experience, combined with her expertise in wealth psychology, gives Jamie a unique sensitivity to issues surrounding the family dynamics of affluence, especially when a multi-generational family business is involved. Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. Now, on to our interview with Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni. Jamie Traeger-Muni, welcome to Money Tales. Lovely to be here. We are excited to talk with you about money today. And to get us started, we would love for you to tell us just a little bit about the arc of your life, maybe focusing on two or three pivotal moments that make you the person you are today. Great. It's so great to be here. And I was thinking about it. I'm so used to being the one to ask the questions and not so much the one to talk about my personal experience as it relates to money. It's a good reminder because it's very vulnerable. I'm delighted to do it, but it it is a role reversal for me. I grew up in a family that uh, unusually talked a lot about money. My father grew up lower middle class, and he really wanted us to know how to use money, the value of money. So that had a lot of influence on me growing up because we talked about it. We did things. We had allowance from a very young age. He got us, when we were very small, bank boxes and ledger books and we would fill in every time we entered some allowance and if we spent it we'd fill that out and he really incentivized us to save our money and at the end of the year whatever we had saved my parents would double they would match so that was a nice incentive and I, I really think that I'm sort of a combination of my parents because my dad was very entrepreneurial he started the wealth in our family in a chain of roller skating rinks of which my siblings both now work in the business and my husband used to work. And my mom got married when she was 19, at the tender age of 19. She left school 
And she subsequently went back and she finished her undergraduate. She did a master's in art, got interested in therapy, got a master's in art therapy, and subsequently got her PhD in psychology. And that was while I was growing up. She graduated. She got her PhD when I graduated from high school. So that had a lot of influence on me. And I was often her guinea pig, even though they say, don't do the testing on your children. She couldn't help herself. (laughs) Right. It really gave me an interest in psychology. And I knew pretty young that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a psychologist. And so I did that. I got my PhD in clinical psychology. And when I graduated, I thought, wow, I've spent this long time in school and I'm behind other friends, but I really don't know the first thing about starting a business. And I didn't have that business piece. And I went to, it was very early. I mean, I graduated from college in 1989. It was early for kind of online classes, but I did some sort of class where you talked on the phone and it was the business of psychology. And in the free class, I got the biggest gem that really shifted my life. They said, psychologists tend to be a mile wide and an inch deep. And you can't really understand. They're not memorable in what they specialize in. Only if you knew the trajectory of their life would you understand their specialization. And their advice was pick the thing that interests you that's the most unique and really specialize in that. And so all the things that I was interested in were things from my life. And one of them was around money. And I'd already started my clinical practice and I lived in the Bay Area in a fairly wealthy area. And I was really struck that none of my clients talked about money unless there was something that they didn't have enough money, then they talk about it. But I knew that 95% of my clients were very comfortable and money, it was just like crickets. So I became very fascinated in the psychology of the emotional impact of money, wealth, and privilege in people's lives. And so that's why I say I feel like a combination of both of my parents, because I think I've been more entrepreneurial than most of my psychologist friends. And I feel like my specialty really is a combination, what I learned from both of my parents, bringing in the psychology, bringing in the entrepreneurism, and focusing on particularly specializing on what it is to be second generation in a family of wealth. So that was a long one. I would say the other two really quickly are, I met my husband my junior year abroad in Israel, and he's also American, but he had a dream to come to Israel and be part of the peace process. And I fell in love with him for that. But while I fell in love with him for that, I didn't want to move to Israel. We don't have any family in Israel. And for 17 years, I fought him on that. And when I went into the field of wealth psychology and I felt like I really found my purpose, what I'm meant to do here in the world, other than you know raising a good family and being a good family member and a friend, I really understood that my husband needed to go to Israel and do what he felt was his life stream. And I was very lucky because at the time, Jay Hughes was my mentor. And he said to me, Jamie, you can't move to Israel as a gift to your husband because it won't work. You have to figure out what's in it for you. 
and what you can take. And so I really did a lot of searching. And I thought, one of the things my father always said to me growing up, always said to all of us children, was that he felt like the one thing he robbed us from is being hungry, that he was really motivated to develop his business and to work hard because he grew up poor and that that wasn't our experience. And while I don't know that I entirely agree that I was robbed of that, that really played out in my mind. And I thought, I want my kids to know from an early age that they can be thrown in the deep end and that they can swim. And I thought, you know, you can't really manufacture being poor, that opportunity. You either have it or you don't. So I thought moving to Israel where they didn't speak the language, they were eight and eight and 11, and they don't know the culture and we don't have family, was a real opportunity to be thrown into the deep end and to know at a really young age that they could trust themselves and that they could survive. And they did a great job of that. And unbeknownst to me, we prepared our children for what would be the third event for me, which came three years after we moved here, which was that I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And I think that because my kids went through that difficult event three years earlier and learned that whatever they needed to do, they would be able to survive, that really girded us as a family in getting through my illness. And I think it made our family stronger. And I think, quite frankly, living in Israel has really been a gift for my children and the responsibility that I see that they have. And who they've become. They're now almost 20 and almost 23. Those are fantastic stories. And what an arc. No kidding. There's a lot to get into here. Let's start with your childhood. So we'll start from the beginning. So you said that your father in particular taught you and your siblings a lot about money. What was driving him? Have you talked to him about that as an adult? Yes. And he continues to do that with my children. My sister's three years younger than me. My brother's six years younger than me, but they had children much later. So my kids are like a decade older than the oldest next grandchild is 13. So, but with my kids, they've developed an internship around financial literacy, around coming into the business and looking at the business, around investing. Both of my kids have a deal with my dad where he gave them a certain amount of money for them to have all the freedom to invest. And he said to them, you know, whatever you lose, don't worry, but whatever profit you get will split. So, you know, for kids in their late teens, early 20s, that's really incentivizing. So they've been really excited to see their stocks grow and to talk with their financial advisor about what kind of stocks and how much to have it be aggressive and how much to have it be more long-term. And it's really great because also their personalities have come out in terms of like for my daughter, social impact investing is really important to her. And my son is really interested in high tech. So he's done a lot of his own research. So those have been great opportunities. And I think my dad did the same for us. It was a conversation about what does it mean to be a family with money? And my parents not only had the conversation, they backed it up with their actions. They've always been very philanthropic. We have a family foundation. And that was a big piece of growing up that you don't 
just have money, you have responsibility to give back. And money is just one aspect. Some people, everybody has things that they inherit. You might inherit intelligence, you might inherit a business acumen, you might inherit wealth, but whatever we have, we have a responsibility to give back that which we have in plenty. So that was a huge life lesson. And I hope that we continue to pass that on to our children. And something my parents always said, my dad has a lot of like little sayings, but one of the most important was the most important things you give your kids are roots and wings. And so that has been a real theme throughout growing up. The other one that I always said that I would have a tattoo, I'd have two tattoos if I was ever going to get a tattoo. One would be because I would always go deep sea fishing with him even though every year I would get deathly, you know, I would just throw up the whole time, but I never seemed to carry that information. So I'd, I would get, don't go deep sea fishing. And the other one would say, never spend the principal, because that was also a big motto for him. Along those lines, Jamie, your dad, he shared the value of money. I really enjoyed the story about he incented kids to save, both your parents did, by matching at year end. Tell us, were you the one that matched the most or were you a spender? How do you approach your own savings and thinking about what's important to you as a kid? I was a saver and my sister was a spender and that was a point of pride. But sometimes I was also like a little bit cheap because so we had clothing allowances too. And I never wanted to spend any of my clothing allowance. And we wore uniforms. So I didn't care what my uniform looked like. And my parents, my mom was at a certain point like, okay, no, you don't want to spend your clothing allowance, but you need to look a little bit respectable to go to school. I think I learned also from my sister because she got a lot of enjoyment out of her spending. And I think I was more cautious about it. And I appreciated the saving, but if I had it to go back again, I think I would have been more of a mix of the two of us. You know, there's a lot of delight in spending and particularly spend, you know, I wasn't spending on experiences when I was growing up, but now, and I think that's the other thing that my parents really instilled in us was that the place that you spend is around experiences. And we were lucky as a family, we would travel, we traveled extensively as a family, but my parents would do a whole educational piece around that too. We had to write reports about every country that we went to. And then as we got older, we would be in charge on certain days of the money and of the itinerary. Jamie, did you ever feel stressed out by that? Because while it is wonderful learning, it's a lot of responsibility too. And I'm just wondering if there's any negative things that came out of that inadvertently. I think that that went kind of at a slow pace. I think what felt overwhelming was more when I graduated college, that was the first time that I got a portion of money, of the family money. And I also got more information about the family money and the family responsibility. And, you know, that can be daunting to feel like you have to take care of it. And in some ways, it's interesting. I'm doing a study right now. I'm just about to launch the study looking at fiscal diversity in couples, particularly where the woman's an inheritor in a heterosexual marriage. And that's true of me. And I think as I'm doing this research and getting ready, I look back and think, you know, I met my husband when we were both 20 and we were married by the time we were 26. So in some ways we grew up together 
And I think that was helpful for me not to have it be so daunting because I had a partner who was helping me with financial literacy, fiduciary responsibility, stewardship. It wasn't all on my shoulders alone. And I had my siblings. And so was your husband learning all of those things along with you or did he come from a background where he had exposure? He learned it with me. In fact, you know, in some ways he's been the leader because he worked in the family business and I'm the only one, you know, my siblings are both in the family business and my husband did and I'm the only one that hasn't. So in some ways he has more of that knowledge than I do. Jamie, can you talk more about your husband being in the family business? It's a roller skating rink business. Family entertainment centers, but mostly, yes, mostly roller skating rinks. Oh, okay. Family entertainment centers. So how was that with your husband working? He's an in-law with your siblings. And sometimes that can be very challenging, especially when it comes to money and ownership and compensation. How'd that work for you all? What were some lessons you all learned? I think it worked pretty well. I, at the same time, was starting in this profession which in some ways, you know, ironically, I think actually hurt my family because I think my siblings and my husband were like, who are you? You're just the family member. Like, don't come in as the expert. (laughs) So in a family business, you have to wear those different hats. And so I couldn't come in with my consultant expertise hat at all. But I think it worked pretty well. I mean, there was a significant time that my father would say, I would say there's about 15 years that my father would say, in five years, I'm going to have the transition and hand over the reins. In five years, in five more years. Once he did it, he did it really swiftly and he really vacated. Not that he hasn't been there to to lend advice, to lend an ear. It also helps that we have a non-family president. So that was also helpful. But I think it's been okay. I mean, it needs to be conversations. You know, at one point, my husband and I sort of advocated after my husband had left, we advocated for my siblings to make more money because we wanted them to be really happy in the jobs that they're doing because we were really happy that they were doing those jobs. And while I love that we have a family business and I'm very proud of it, I personally don't want to be in that family business. So I really appreciate that my siblings are willing to do that. And I think there was a period of time where my parents weren't as transparent. So they were making salary decisions and we didn't know what each other were making. And I think that was actually harder. I think when they finally were more open about it, I think that made it much easier. And that was really because my dad's very into estate planning. They had they had sold us most of the business. We have a family limited partnership, but they still had the controlling 2%. And so it wasn't until they sold us those shares that we really had the ability to make those decisions. But, and I think they were worried about that because one of the things they've always talked about is that they never want money to be something that divides us as a family. We're a very, very close family. You know, we travel, now we all travel, the 13 or 15 of us, however many there are, if girlfriends or boyfriends are included, we travel when it's not COVID yearly together. But I think in retrospect, the more openness there was and the more that we had to really talk it out amongst us in the second generation, I think the better it was. Makes sense to me. 
And Jamie, can you tell us more about those conversations and how you guys communicate or learn to communicate? Because as great as it is to be transparent and have that openness, getting there can be really difficult. And so did you guys come up with some rules? And I, I can only imagine how it must have felt for you with your professional training and experience to maybe have some of the skill sets to bring everyone together, but them saying, well, wait, you're my sister. You're not my therapist. <laughs> right, right. It wasn't so accepted. I, I think that we had to grow up as siblings, you know, as in any family, there's old family dynamics of my brother Josh being the baby and, you know, a rivalry between my sister and I and my probably holding on to being the oldest. And we had to accept each other as adults and leave behind some of those past things. And I think one of the things my dad can run a little bit anxious, both my parents, but my dad would never want us again, to fight about money. So he would say things like, your job is not to fuck up the family. And at one point I said, okay, we're going to stop meeting as a full family. We still have family meetings, but we're going to start having, I don't call it G2. I like to call it M2 because it's not the second generation of the family. The family has gone on for many generations, the second generation of the money in our family. So let's start having M2 meetings. And when we started having those, then we could say, like I said to my sibling, I hate when dad says, don't fuck up the family, because it feels like all you can do, you know, it's right up there for me with shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. It's like the best that you can do is maybe maintain, but you're really on a trajectory down. And my siblings agreed with me. So we changed it to how can we really support one another to live out our dreams? and be there for each other, and to use the money as a resource for that. And I think that felt much more as a motivational call for us to be partners than don't fuck up the family. <laughs> I love the reframing. Did you guys go back to your father and retrain him on his vocabulary? He still says his thing. He'll still say, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. That's his perspective and we know it. He can be kind of look at a glass half empty and we want to look from a glass half full. That being said, this was a very, very challenging, 2020 was a very, very challenging year and continues to be a very challenging year for us because when you own family entertainment centers in the period of COVID and you have to close and you have to lay off over 500 employees, it's scary. And it's scary even today. We were able to get the first PPP loan, but the second loan, you have to have under 300 employees. And we have 500 employees, but we have many, many employees like a restaurant that are very part-time. But every employee that works even an hour is an employee. So, you know, we're still carrying the overhead of the real estate without having the business be operating. So that's really been challenging for my siblings. And in those kind of times, my dad really can be the voice of reason. He's not a doom and gloom. He really helps us put it in perspective. But I really take my hats off to my siblings 
because this has been an extremely hard year for them. And it's been a hard year for everybody, but we've been relatively removed from that. It's so challenging. And thanks for sharing that story because I think everybody has their own and it is a good reminder of how hard it is. Yeah. And fingers crossed that we'll be able to keep this baby that my parents created for us. Fingers crossed. Jamie, when you were in Northern California and you had started your clinical psychology business, you mentioned that your affluent clients didn't talk about money. And I'm curious, why do you think that is? Well, I think money is one of the biggest taboos left, maybe the only taboo left. My clients did a lot of talking about sex. I heard a lot about sex, but I didn't hear a lot about money until I started in this field. When I started to focus and specialize in looking at the emotional impact of money, wealth, and privilege, then my clients had no choice because that's what they were coming for. And I could and I still can set my watch by any first session I have with a potential client. 20 minutes in, they'll say, I'm so happy I found you. I have nowhere else to talk about this. And that's when I really knew that I was doing something that was important. Even if I, I've done a lot of press conversations and I'm a big advocate for not looking at wealth holders as a monolith. Now, I say often that whenever you judge somebody just because they're a member of a group, that that's an ism, that doesn't always play well. And I'm not comparing it. I'm not saying that the issues that arise from having wealth are the same as someone who's dealt with racism or someone who's dealt with sexism. I'm not making that comparison, but I do believe that everybody has a right to openly explore whatever their unique challenges are. And so many of the clients that I work with have nowhere else to talk about it because, you know, if you say to somebody, I have really ambivalent feelings or I feel guilty for my wealth or, you know, any of those things, most people will say, for you. Are you crazy? Before COVID times, I was going to do a retreat for wealth holders that had to get canceled because of COVID. But I was in an exercise class and I was talking about it. And I, somebody said, well, I don't understand. Why would inheritors need to go on a retreat to, to talk about the issues they have about their wealth? Like That was totally anachronistic to their thinking because for the most part, we live in a world where, in the first world, where we believe, maybe in the whole world, the more money you have, the better. And in my experience, that is not a correlation that happens. And actually, in the research, the research shows us that up to a certain amount, a very low amount, $75,000, up to $75,000 a year, you do have an, a better life the more money you earn. But at $75,000, it plateaus. And nobody making $75,000 in the United States is going to be seen as ultra high net worth one percenter. So the research doesn't back up what we mistakenly think about having wealth. And Jamie, since we're at Money Tales podcast, trying to help encourage everyone to have more money conversations I'm wondering, can you imagine a time when talking about money is not a taboo? And if so, what do you think society would look and feel like? Such a great question, Sandy. I can't imagine a time, I guess because I'm so steeped in it, but 
even when I wasn't steeped in it, I remember my best friend growing up who we told each other everything. And because it took me so much longer to get out of school than some other friends, she had graduated and gone to work for a big marketing firm in Chicago. And when I got out of graduate school, I said to her, what do you make? And she was so offended. She couldn't believe that I asked her that. Now, if I told you some of the personal things that we told each other, <laughs> you know, I was shocked that that was offensive to her. And I wasn't asking as any form of judgment. I really just had no idea what people were making. I didn't have that knowledge. And how would I? You know, how do we have information unless we have conversations? And, you know, I say it to my inheritor clients all the time, you might have inherited wealth, but you didn't inherit financial literacy or the ability to make good decisions and make mistakes with wealth. For me, it's just like if I had parents who spoke French, I wish I had parents who spoke a different language, but they don't. But if they never spoke that language to me and I never practice it and I never made mistakes with it, I wouldn't automatically just inherit the ability to speak French. You have to learn it. And I believe that learning good money skills come from conversation. So I think there would be, you know, and what we're already seeing in the research with couples is the more they're talking about the fiscal diversity and both the challenges, but also the benefits from however you grew up, whatever socioeconomic status you grew up in and what you can bring to your relationship, the better and stronger those relationships are. So I hope it will stop being such a taboo. I'm going to give you a hallelujah, sister. <laughs> it's funny to me when you really think about it, money is just a neutral form of barter and we deicize it. And the more you don't talk about it, it's like not talking about cancer. You know, anything you don't talk about is that scary thing in your room that's a boogie monster until you turn on the light and realize it's just the bathrobe over your chair. Totally agree. Jamie, let's take this back to you personally. And you talked about as a youth, you were more the saver and you just was more the spender. And I appreciated your reflection on wishing that maybe you could enjoy money a little bit more. Where are you today? You know, cancer was really a gift in that sense. My husband and I owned a house when we lived in the Bay Area, and we owned it for 10 years. It needed a kitchen and all new bathrooms. And for 10 years, we said we were going to do it. And for 10 years, and we had the money. We just didn't feel like we deserved it or that we were entitled to it. And when I got sick, I said, forget that. You know, I might not live to have my dream house. I don't need to have a house that's a showpiece. I want to have a house that I really love living in that feels really good because this is where I spend most of my time. And so I often say that this house is the house that cancer built because it gave me that permission. It's a great question because as I get older, as our children are out of the house, my husband and I are thinking a lot about our next steps. And it involves potentially giving ourselves, again, permission to spend money, to because we want to travel more. So 
it's still a work in progress because I think that while I had money growing up and sometimes in my family, we lived in a very large house and that was the epitome of embarrassment. If we drove up to my house, if someone was dropping us off and one of my friends said something like, oh, you, you know, I remember a very specific, that same friend said, oh, doesn't Jamie live in a huge house? And I just remember wishing that a little compartment in the car would open up and I could just fall. You know, I was really embarrassed. But for the most part, I don't think we have been flashy. But again, we did travel a lot. And so that's still where I would want to spend my money is having experiences. And Jamie, I'm curious, moving from the United States to Israel is a big cultural shift. So I'm wondering, what did you notice about your relationship with money, your family's relationship with money, seeing it through the lens of living in a whole new society with different norms? Yeah, it's so interesting. Israelis are much more open about talking about money. I will never forget that my husband and I, when we first moved, (laughs) we actually hadn't moved. It was right before we got married. We came and we lived here for two years and we were moving into our apartment and the taxi driver, as we drove up, he said, how much do you pay for this place? I couldn't believe he asked me that. You know, it was like such a strange question, but people will say that all the time. Like, how much does your house cost? Or how much do you make that I'm not as used to? But it is refreshing in terms of adjusting. I don't know. It's been interesting too to see how our kids have reacted because we lived in a big house in the Bay Area and they were young, but they were embarrassed by that. And then we came here and we lived in an apartment. And then there were, my daughter was a little embarrassed about that. She wanted to live in a bigger house. And then we built this house. Now we live in a house. And I think a lot of Israelis still live in apartments, you know, and we live in a single family house. So that's a little bit different. So then she went again to being embarrassed. So it's sort of interesting to see how that plays, that we're always sort of checking ourselves. I think, as people and comparing. Have you gotten used to answering some of the questions, the blatant questions about money and how much things cost? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this is the house the cancer built. (laughs) And I think it's important too that while we should be more open, that we're in control of what we say. Just because somebody asked me how much my house costs doesn't mean that I owe them an answer. And I'm allowed to say what's comfortable for me and what I feel like is appropriate. Jamie, who do you believe has a great relationship with money? I guess I would say, I think my parents have a really nice balance of living nicely and traveling, but also being very philanthropic, not only with their money, but with their time and their leadership. So I really admire them for that. That being said, I know that they have their own money anxieties sometimes that I think are fairly foundless, but are still there. I don't know if I'd say I know anybody that has a totally good relationship. I think that there is, even if you don't need to, because I can look at my parents and say in their lifetime, they are fine. Even something really catastrophic. I mean, granted, they're 81 and 77. So they have maybe a a shorter lifespan, hopefully a long lifespan still. But 
I think they're pretty fine and they still have their money worries. Maybe that's life. Money, good relationship takes work, right? Right. Takes healthy tension. Yeah, I think it is. I think you're actually right. It is life. It's just like relationships. Now, I think my parents have a good marriage too. Doesn't mean it doesn't have its issues. Right. Or that they don't have to work on it, right? That it's right. Or that they never fight. Jamie, you've had a very full life up until this point. What do you most want to do that you haven't done yet? Huh. <laughs> my kids will kill me. I want to be a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. I don't think it's imminently on the horizon, but I love life and I would love to travel more and I would love to have more time with my family. But I think the only thing, I think the only thing that I haven't done that I would be so sad if I were to die right now, not having done is be a grandmother. That's a great answer. And Jamie, I'm also curious as someone who talks a lot about money and you've shared so much about your own personal experience that we really appreciate it. Are you talking about money today with friends, with people outside of your family and who are not clients? Yeah, I'm pretty open about money. It can still be a struggle sometimes. I think there's a real difference between earned wealth and inherited wealth. For me personally, I'm not making a judgment on somebody else, but for me personally, it feels different. I feel like I have less agency around it, less ownership. You know, I feel lots and lots of gratitude, but a lot of sort of being part of the lucky sperm and egg club and a lot of responsibility that not only have my parents really provided, helped provide for our lives, helped provide for my children's lives in the future. As I start having these conversations with my kids, my husband and I really feel like our job is to provide those benefits for our grandchildren. And that if we can each skip a generation and pass it down to grandchildren, that that would be a really wonderful thing to be able to do. I see a theme here. Jamie, you've shared a tremendous amount of wisdom in this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to impart on our listeners that we haven't covered or that you'd want to just really underscore? I'll share one other story that I think was really interesting and I love to share it because it's one of two times in my entire life that I've had the exact right thing to say at the exact right moment. I brought a boyfriend home from college. And as we were, I went to University of Michigan. He grew up pretty different socioeconomically. And I think he knew that there was a difference. But as we were driving up and we turned into my driveway, he said, hold on, stop right there. He's like, you are not the person I thought you were. And I looked at him, you know, I got a little scared, but I looked at him and I said, listen, I'm exactly the same person I was five minutes ago, because none of this is a surprise for me. I grew up in this house. The only thing that's changed is your perception of me. And God love that made so much sense. He's like, you're right. And it was a non-issue. And I think on both ways, I think for him, it was intimidating, but also in the ways that can sometimes puff you up. The money that I have isn't who I am as a person, and it isn't who any of us are as a person. We have to decide who we are as people. And if the goal is money, in my opinion, you're kind of missing the point because money's just a tool to use towards whatever goals you choose. 
Really well said. Jamie, I love that. I'm just having such a strong reaction to that. So powerful. And I think all of the perceptions that we have about people and money really do get in the way. And I like how you just simply put that. So thank you for that. Jamie, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? I would imagine it's going to be with clients. It won't be that same conversation about telling the story about my boyfriend, but I hope that it'll impart the same message. Because a lot of my clients really struggle a lot with the wealth that they have, my inheritor clients. They feel that, that it's not fair that they have so much when others have so little. And even when they're doing so much to help even out that inequity, they still feel like they didn't earn it. And again, what I say all the time is we all inherit things that give us privilege. Maybe it's our skin color. Maybe it's where we grew up. My father always used to say, being born in the United States and the opportunities that that has provided for education is a tremendous inheritance. It's a saying my kids say, check your privilege. But I think it's important to remember that just because you have financial privilege doesn't make you entitled and it doesn't make you someone that doesn't have their own worth and their own contribution to make in the world. And that contribution might have nothing to do with money. And Jamie, I'm just curious to dive down into this a little further. There's so many people today who have accumulated more wealth than ever before in their families' lines in history. And when we work with those people, their biggest concern is raising kids who will be entitled. Uh, They don't want to do that. And so it's interesting to hear you describe the struggle that you're, you're facing with your clients. And I'm wondering what can the parents do beyond providing financial education and literacy to help prepare their heirs? But what else can they do to help avoid some of the feelings that inheritors feel? I think two things. I think, first of all, giving them real experiences, not just having it be talk. When we raised our kids, we decided that we would give them allowance and that they were allowed to spend their allowance on anything except candy and toy weapons. And uh, I remember my husband calling me once because my son, he was probably five, he wanted to buy sea monkeys and they were $16 and he got a dollar a week for allowance. So that was like four months of allowance. I think Noah called me and said, you know, he won't let me buy them. So I said, okay, put your dad on the phone. I said, let him buy it. I'll be great. So he bought them. They didn't work. And I waited a little while and then I said to him, Noah, what'd you learn about that experience? And he said, oh, that was a waste of my money. I'm going to do better research next time before I spend my money. I'm going to look to see if those things are good. And I see him doing that now. And he's at an age where it makes a big difference because soon he'll be buying an apartment and a car. And I'd much rather him waste $16 and have that learning experience. I think the other thing is really allowing kids to talk about their ambivalence. I don't know that I would have ever felt comfortable as much as we talked about money 
to talk about some of my ambivalent feelings about inheriting wealth with my parents because that would have felt ungrateful. And maybe it's easier for me to allow that with my children because there was inheritance for me and there'll be inheritance for them. I say, I guess I also sang, it's not just my dad, but you could go to a Michelin restaurant and bring home leftovers. So leftovers that are so delicious. But if you put them in the refrigerator and you ignore them, they're eventually going to stink. I'm not saying that money in any way is going to stink. It can be delicious. But if you put it in the refrigerator and you never take it out to the light of day and you don't allow yourself all the feelings, good, bad, ugly, whatever they are, and a place to talk about those feelings, then it has a high likelihood of becoming rotten. So, you know, and for parents that have made the money to understand that that is a natural thing that kids have to talk about and to allow that. Jamie Traeger Muni, what a great conversation. I love ending with that metaphor. Don't let the money stink. Don't let it rot. Enjoy it. (laughs) Figure out what place it has in your life and figure out what's most important to you. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. You're welcome. It was a delight. Thank you for bringing three generations to the conversation as well. Yes, my kids will kill me. (laughs) I'm never allowed to bring three generations and I always do. Well, we wish you luck with the next one as well. (laughs) Thank you, Jamie. And to you guys, take care. Sandy, what a great conversation with Jamie Traeger-Muni. She was fabulous. Kemi, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jamie Traeger-Muni. I think it was so fun to talk to her about money when she's usually the person talking with her own clients about money. That was cool. I also thought, how fun was it to talk to someone in Israel, very far away, sharing her perspectives over the internet. Yeah, that made it special. Certainly what Jamie shared about her experience living in another country and being the recipient of a very different societal perspective around money was eye-opening. I found myself wondering, wow, what if someone asked me how much I paid for my house? It's so true, right? We just don't do that. No, we just Google it instead. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded very refreshing. And then I put myself in her shoes receiving that question, and I felt it would have made me close up. But that reminds me of why we're having these conversations is why do you have to close up? She had a great tip. You don't have to talk about the money. Right. You don't have to answer someone's question. Or you could just respond to a question with another question, which is one of my favorite strategies. (laughs) How much did you pay for your house? (laughs) (laughs) You tell me and then I'll tell you. Exactly. It's a great learning opportunity for us to see what other cultures do and challenge our approach. And it's it's neat for her to share that with us. And it sounds like it's really broadened their family's money conversations. I agree. And Kimmy, one of the things that Jamie shared with us that I think will always have a lasting impact on me was the story she told about her boyfriend from college who she brought home and how he had changed his perspective of her once he saw her parents' house. And I thought that was such a powerful message about perspectives and how they really shift how we feel about money and other people and their relationship with money, even though the facts and circumstances 
didn't change from one moment to the next. Right. The judgment that we bring and whatever our past expectations are, influences of media, anything that make us think a certain way. Yeah. So I think I will always try to self-regulate when I have a thought in my mind, wait a second, is this just my perspective changing? So thank you for that, Jamie. That is a great, great point. I'm going to share one of my favorites, something that I hope to bring to my family was how her dad and her mom, who sounds like they were progressive with their money conversations with their family. And at a very early age, they talked to their kids about how to use money, how do you value money? And how do you incent your family to save money? They did it through a matching program, which it still is just makes me smile. And it's going to be part of my family, how I teach my kids. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. And Kimmy, I just want us to to stop and, and realize that her parents were teaching these lessons, having had a very different money upbringing that they were providing for their children. And so I think that's fantastic that they realized that there's a lot more money at play for their children. And it was really important to teach their children the skills and the competencies to make good decisions about money. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say to round out this conversation, another piece of wisdom that Jamie shared with us was the idea that there is no such thing as a perfect money relationship. Yes. Right? What I think is a healthy money relationship might be different than what you think is a healthy money relationship. And we don't need to strive for perfection. We just need to find our own definition of healthy and embrace that. And Jamie talked about along those lines how vulnerable she felt in this conversation. And I think you got to bring your own vulnerability to your personal money conversations to get deeper and really get into the the goodness of those conversations. I'm so glad you brought that up, Cammy, because I was thinking when we have these money tales conversations with our guests from week to week, they really are in a vulnerable state and they always come across as sounding so strong and confident. And sometimes folks will let us in and, and share their vulnerability with us. But it was just a good reminder that we can come across as being one way, but have a very different interior experience. You're right. And makes me even more appreciative of what each guest is bringing to us, which is really beyond the stories and the learnings. They're bringing their vulnerability. It makes me even more appreciative. Such a gift. Another gift we have is all of our wonderful Money Tales listeners. And this is a good time to thank all of you for sticking with us every week and listening to the tales that our guests are telling. We're having such a good time and we hope you're enjoying listening to the conversations. And we'd love for you to let us know what insights you're learning. Uh, hear your feedback. You can email us at podcasts at Asperient.com and we'd love to hear from you. Yes, please reach out and look for another Many Tales episode next week. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Cammie. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.